Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, citizens of Gekonia. Welcome to another edition of Gecko Nation Radio. Uh, today is December 1st, 2013, and we have a very special guest with us tonight, Mr. Dr. John Klarsfeld, DVM. Yes, he's a veterinarian and a day gecko breeder since 1993. And we're going to be journeying to the, to the rainforests of Madagascar, and we're going to be talking about all kinds of cool stuff related to day geckos and other things. Um, if you guys want to check out his website, it's www.giantdaygecko.com. And uh, you'll know you're in the right place when you see the white and black gecko foot icon in the upper left-hand corner. And um, just want to let you guys know Gecko Nation Radio is doing so well, and it wouldn't be possible without our great sponsors. So check them out. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by abdragons.com. is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. Razor Sharp Reptiles. Like the name suggests, Jamie Carnes has some sharp gecko and snake projects in the works. He is very well known for his work with rare species, such as cave geckos, but also has some of the prettiest radar projects I've ever seen. Razor Sharp Reptiles is also known for high-end fat tails and beautiful rainwater leopard gecko morph projects. Check out RazorSharpReptiles.com online and on Facebook. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need, from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or... It can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. 
If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. All right, everybody, we are back. Tonight I have a very special surprise uh, co-host with me, and it's none other than gecko enthusiast and one of the show's biggest fans, Miss Miss Amanda Welliver. Mandy, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, guys. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? I'm awesome. I'm so happy <laughs> cool. to be helping you co-host tonight. <laughs> oh, it's great to have you. Um, I'm looking forward to the show. It's you know you, you know just so everybody knows, Mandy was. The, uh, the lucky winner of the Day Gecko the last time we interviewed John on the lost episodes of Gecko Land Radio. So um, Mandy has a, a unique Woo! connection to this to this episode. So I'm happy to have you, Mandy. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, happy to be what, is your, what is your favorite gecko forum out there? Well... My favorite gecko forum would have to have to be the um gecko forums that the yeah. i don't actually i don't actually use any of the forums anymore because I found myself i don't know like i I get on them once in a while to check things out um and kind of read back through the history of things and like mm-hmm. read through posts, but I'm not active in them anymore I found myself it there it just seemed like a lot of drama and i found myself connecting more with people on facebook now um mm-hmm. i i think i enjoy the facebook uh, gecko nation is where i'm at on facebook right i think i post more on the facebook gecko nation site than i do on my own personal facebook <laughs> but um that's <laughs> That would have to be my favorite, but I'm addicted to Facebook. It's bad. <laughs> well, well <laughs> you, an, you answered the question. so easy. You answered the question, right, because where I was going with that was um, I wanted to remind everybody that, you know, Facebook did steal some of the action with forums, but there is an awesome forum out there for gecko enthusiasts, and you guys got to check oh, this yeah. out. Oh, yeah, Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. All right, cool. Um, so, Mandy, how's your little day gecko doing? My day gecko is awesome. I, it, it's got a special place in my heart. I love it. He, I, I recently discovered that it is a he, um, or at least mm-hmm. I'm pretty like 75 percent sure right now he's still pretty young sub-adult but um yeah he's oh just a great personality so friendly for being a day gecko and just the sweetest little thing licking my 
finger when he eats his food. He eats right out of my hand. I love him. That's awesome. I could tell by the pictures you post that you've kind of like bonded with him, and he seems really, for a little day gecko, he seems really calm with you, I guess, right? I, I He's great. I, I mean, I was skeptical back before. Like, I had always wanted a day gecko, but I, I kind of shied away from them because I'm, I've always been more of like wanting to interact with my lizards and hold them. That's, I love my leopard geckos, but this little guy definitely has changed my views on how friendly they can be. I mean, he'll jump on my hand and eat the bugs. He, he loves his little do, dubia nymphs, but he eats them right out of my hands. I, I can pretty much put my hand right in there next to him and almost pet him. He, he, he kind of shy still a little with that, mm-hmm. but I love him so much. And it's just having something tropical and be able to use live plants, it's really, it's something different from, from the leopard geckos, but it's special. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, and that's what I love about him too, because um, with our, you know, when you read a lot of leopard geckos, we have them in our, in our racks, and we, we don't really get to enjoy them um, too much as far as, you know, visual Visually, you know, you have to actually open the drawer, look at right. it and everything. And I kind of, that takes away from it. It takes away from the ownership a little bit of um, leopard geckos, I think. And, but, you know, with the day geckos, if you set them up so in, in such elaborate uh, displays, they really do make for just amazing visual animals. Um, yeah, so I agree with you on that. I'm getting a, a transmission from one of our satellites, and it is... Good evening, Gekonians. <laughs> good evening, Woo-hoo! Steve. <laughs> How you guys doing? Doing good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Cool. All right. I hope you have some happy, I hope you have some happy stories for us tonight. Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. It's tough to find a happy story. I know, right? right? It's the news. <laughs> All right. Our first story comes out of Arizona. Diversity of reptiles has made Arizona a target for reptile poachers. Wildlife officials are, are determined to keep reptile populations healthy. Poachers are known to frequent desert roads looking for Gila monsters and various rattlesnakes. State law enforcement have fitted a Gila monster named Ranger with a microchip and they release him to nab poachers. The, the officials hide nearby and wait for someone to pull over and pick up Ranger and that's enough to make a stop and issue a citation. So they're making, making an attempt to, to stop poaching, wow. which is, is cool. Yeah, huh? Yeah, I don't. I that wouldn't trap. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting how they're, how they're yeah. rigging the gill monster up. You know, that's that's weird. Yeah. That's cool. huh. yeah. That's Hope, hopefully he's uh, he's not stressed out too much though. But, you right. know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I don't. I'm not familiar with. You know, heel monsters. So I don't know if they stress real easy or anything. But to me, it would seem like that would stress a reptile out to be constantly put out there. 
Right. Mm. But at the same time, but, the amount of good, the, the amount of yeah. good that he could be doing, saving other ones from getting, gosh knows what will happen to him. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then we're going to Texas, where in Austin, Texas, Ryan Harris was pulled over for a minor traffic violation and caught with several reticulated pythons. In Texas, it is illegal to sell and transport reticulated pythons without a permit. Ryan Harris faces a $350 fine and cannot apply for the permit for five years. Mm -hmm. Wow. All right, well, there it is. I guess, um, well, no, he was transporting them where? They just said he was transporting them. That's all. Oh, all okay. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, they want to, you know, if they, if it, you know, some of these things, it's a felony to transport, you know, transport them across state lines. That's, that's some, yeah, you know, it, if you only get a fine. Yeah, know. that's that's within the state. He It didn't say okay. they transported them out of state. That's within right. the state. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. and staying in Texas... Gabe Morden seized a five-foot alligator from an Alamo home. The gator was kept in a round tub inside a chicken coop. The conditions were not good, and the alligator could not stretch out in the tub. It, it, the tub, the alligator, you know, imagine a five-foot alligator. It looked like it was the bottom of a 55-gallon drum that it was put in. I mean, mm-hmm. it, the gator's head, tip of his head was touching his tail. That's how it, what he was being kept in. So picture that. Mm-hmm. And it was released into the Rio Grande River by officials. Which Are is, you serious? Yeah. <laughs> that's what the artist <laughs> said. <laughs> huh. All right, wait a second. Hold on now. Are, are are gators even native to Texas? Not that I'm aware of. Yeah. <laughs> so they let that, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. Huh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and sticking with our crocodilians, um, a Miami Beach resident took pictures of an American crocodile nicknamed Rupert Swimming around sailboats near Sunset Harbor. <laughs> Believed oh, to be wow. the first crocodile in the area for more than 20 years. And this, in Miami Beach is a native habitat when it was swamp for American crocodiles. So in 20 years, it's been 20 years, they think 20 years since anyone's seen one there. Hmm. So that's cool. Giant and, snakes. And now we'll have giant alligators, crocodiles. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh. they were there first. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's an American crocodile. They're so. making a comeback. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good to me. Yeah. And local residents are treating the estimated 11-foot crocodile as a celebrity. Residents also hope boaters will slow down and avoid hitting Rupert. So that's cool that they're they're actually welcoming him. So that's real cool. For now. 
Yeah. But I guess it's not like <laughs> they're just these boaters. I guess they're not going to be doing a lot of swimming there then. I'm I'm assuming. Uh, actually, in the article, there was a photographer who was who, an underwater photographer who tried to get photos of them and jumped right in, and he the the crack went the other direction. Didn't want anything to do with people, so it looks like he's avoiding people for the most part, at least mm-hmm. direct contact with people. Stays that way. <laughs> yeah, really. Or else Rupert ain't gonna be so famous anymore. Yeah, really. Oh, boy. (laughs) Okay, and in Jacksonville, Florida, a resident discovered a 30-inch Savannah monitor living under his shed, and the resident wishes to have it removed and has made several calls to animal control, zoos, fish and wildlife officials, and an alligator farm, but no attempt has been made to have it removed yet. Hmm. Hmm. So it's still under the shed right now. As of, <laughs> I'll come remove it. <laughs> well, days ago, yeah, it's it was still under the shed. <laughs> and, and the article <laughs> said he had a nice fat belly, so he's well fed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the the owner of the property is an 88 year old man that has a a small dog that fears the dog's life. Mm. He's worried that the gate that the uh, savannah is going to eat the dog. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Oh my. So then our last story: an Oregon mom found a snake's head in a bag of frozen green beans. She called <laughs> the product. Yeah, she called the product hotline. Yeah, could you imagine? And when she complained, she received a $15 coupon. Okay. Oh my God. Now, she is threatening legal action because the family had already eaten some of the beans out of the bag prior to the discovery. Could you could you imagine that? <laughs> I can. I can imagine. Definitely. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> so now I, I want. I wanted to start. Uh, I'm going to try and keep it going. Uh, a little section called Herp History, and okay, nice. Wanted to do it as to this day in history, but it's too hard to do that. So our first story in Herp his, history is in Chicago. On March 7th, 1950, at the Brookfield Zoo, a giant Galapagos tortoise laid eggs, and it would be the first of the species to be hatched in an American zoo. Awesome. Yeah, March 7th, 1950. Cool. That's pretty. Wow. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm going to try and keep that going. I li- you know, I like to look up history, and and um, so hopefully I can keep that going, you know, on, on herp history, anything to do with herps. And, and, I like uh, it. Yeah, nice. We can put it out to the listeners, too, if they, you know, hear of any uh, yeah. historical things and, you know, contact us. Um, 
GeckoNationRadio at gmail.com. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, cool. I thought that would be a good little added yeah, segment. Yeah, definitely. I love it. Excellent idea, Steve. Definitely. So, so uh, I will, all right. Well, the herp well, history the will keep is not oh, sorry, a fake story. Okay? We'll keep the herp history will never be a fake story. Okay? Okay. Just nice. so cool. We'll keep that totally like a separate section. <laughs> well, well, why don't so. we, you know, do maybe, maybe you should give us the herp history after we do the um, figuring out which is the fake story. You know what I mean? Okay. All right. Great. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, give us a recap. Okay. The recap is poachers hunt Arizona reptiles. Mm-hmm. Texas man fined for illegal reptiles. Alamo family found keeping an alligator. Crocodile spotted in Miami Beach. Jacksonville man discovers big lizard. Oregon mom finds dead snake's head in beans. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm looking in the chat room. What do you guys think out there? We got like 50 people in here. Come on. What do you guys think? (laughs) Jeff says they all seem fake. I know. I want to think they're all fake. Yeah, that's Um, rough. (laughs) Um, what do you think, Mandy? Um, I kind of think it's the Savannah Monitor. Uh, I I just have a hard time believing that they wouldn't come and get it. Like, the animal control or someone wouldn't come. Shoot, like, somebody posted on their Facebook, I have a Savannah under my, like, shed. I would be there if it was local. I'd be there in a heartbeat. Like, I mean, I just have a hard time believing that there's a savanna somewhere in some under someone's poor shed. Like, just probably somebody's pet that. and no one's no one's going to to come help it. So, that's mm-hmm. that's my vote. I vote the monitor. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the snake's head. In the bag. I mean, I think, I think, I think, Mandy, you're right. It could be that one too. I, there's a couple. Like, it could even be the one with the uh, the Alamo. The people, with, you know, that could, you know, the yeah. alligator and the Alamo thing. Um, it's a tough one. Yeah, it is a tough one. See, Steve is getting trickier and trickier every time. Um, <clears throat> actually, yeah, I'm going to go with the alligator and the Alamo. That's the one I'm going to go with. That's yeah, a fake story. Uh, that's a good one, too. I mean, they're talking about all this injurious wildlife, and they're going to go release this alligator somewhere it's not native. Like, that just seems <laughs> kind of backwards. I know, but, you know, you, I don't put it past anybody today to do backwards stuff yeah. either. <laughs> there's two loop sided snakes in the Everglades. Don't forget. We heard about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's see. Everybody's going with uh, the green beans and the gator. Uh, the green beans and snakes. Um, all right, Steve. What is the what is the fake story? Okay, the fake story is the Texas man fined for the reticulated pythons. Really? That's yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but it is wow. illegal to sell and transport reticulated pythons without a permit in Texas. Mhm. Okay. But right. that's the fake. Story. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so all that other Dumb ridiculous stuff is true. 
Yeah, I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't believe the the releasing the alligator. I mean, I I was like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs> but the, the truth we, is stranger than fiction. We heard we heard that before with the ball python at the apartment building where they took it out to the yeah. woods and released it. So. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. Wow. Wow. What's going on in your uh, What's going on in your collection and your your projects? You. I had a. Uh, a couple of ovulations, so I started pairing up leopard geckos, and I've been pairing up ball pythons. Oh, nice. Yeah. I've only had yeah. a couple blocks so far with the ball pythons, but but uh, leopard geckos, they're interested almost immediately, it seems like. so. <laughs> wow, I can't believe yours are ovulating already. I mean, I had a couple of years, too, but... It seems like every year the leopard geckos are ovulating earlier and earlier. It's really weird. Hmm. Strange. Yeah. Usually they they usually go at the end of, you know, January. But, you know, last year it was December, and now, you know, I had one in the middle of November. You're having them now. Wow. I guess, you know, yeah, Glenn is having ovulation too. Hmm. Weird. Oh, he's making a joke. Boy, All man, right. I just had a... Uh... Another clutch of, I told, I already talked to you about it, Dave, but um, gargoyle eggs, which I haven't oh, had. Right. A, I haven't had a male in with the female since probably June or July, and she's still laying eggs. So <laughs> and they're fertile. Wow. So that's that's huh. pretty. cool. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. <laughs> wow. All right. Cool. Well, Steve, I just want to thank you for the new addition to the news segment. That's great. I love the Hearth History idea. Um, and uh, why don't you give out your information for everybody so they can find you? Uh, check me out on uh, Facebook and YouTube under BC Barker Creations. Cool. All right. We'll see. Is there anything else you want to tell us before we let you go, Steve? Uh, nope. That was it. Awesome. Thanks, All right. Steve. Cool. Next. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week. See you there. All right. All right. What do you think, Mandy? Steve's doing a a great job with the news. It gets better every time. I love it. I love it. Very entertaining. Better than watching the news on TV. <laughs> By you know, I was time. always thinking, definitely. What do you think, you know, like, with all these news stations out there, they're so negative. You would have think that sooner or later one of these channels would think it would be such a great idea to have a news channel that's just all positive news. You know? Yeah. That, that would be I'm, nice. I would love to start something like that, but I don't know anything about network TV. So I'll just stick to Gecko yeah, Nation Radio. I watch my I listen to my radio and I watch my, my couple shows and that's about it. <laughs> I don't watch the news. Yeah. If it's on Facebook, I might see it. But other than that, I don't. I don't really watch the news. It's it's all sad. I know, terrible. Well, on a positive note, we have an excellent, awesome guest with us tonight. Uh, John Carsfeld's John Carsfeld DVM is on the line, and we're going to go ahead and take his call right now. John, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hey guys, it's uh, great to be here. I, you know, I wanted to know, am I officially a Gekonian now that i am been a guest for two times now? Yes, you are. You've been, Heck you've yeah. 
Welcome into the clan of the Gekonians. Awesome. So do I get a little sticker or like a special little hat or something that I can wear around to, you know, show this um, special, uh, uh, you know, award? Membership, we're working, man. We're, yeah, we're working on that. In fact, we have the Cafe Press site where you can get all kinds of uh, Gecko Nation stuff there. So uh, as far as tattoos, though, we don't have those yet. But okay. we'll get you a sticker. <laughs> we'll get you a sticker or something for sure. Yeah, because I'm very Thanks. proud to be a Gekonian now, and I guess uh, I don't know. Would that mean I would live in Gekotopia or something? Nope, you'd live on the planet Gekonia, and that is in the uh, Galactic Gecko Empire, um, which is very far <laughs> out in the Ublif- in the Ublifaris Galaxy, actually. So, ah, uh, how awesome uh, is that? Well, yeah. I'd like to make my own galaxy of the Felsumidae galaxy. Okay, that's cool. That's the neighboring galaxy, actually. So, yes, we're there aware we go. of it. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Well, you know, hey, uh, John. It's great to, John. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, for everybody that doesn't know you already, um, uh, please tell everybody who you are and what you do. Sure. So, uh, um, I have been breeding... Um, you know, lizards in general, reptiles, for pretty much since I was a very young kid. Uh, and, you know, it's been a long journey, a great journey. It's so educational. You always meet uh, new people and learn new things. It's just a fantastic hobby. And um, once I became an adult, I decided to specialize in kind of one species, and that's the giant day gecko, Felsuma grandis. And... I moved to Florida so that I could, you know, raise these animals uh, without any kind of space restriction because they are kept outside. Uh, and in doing this, you know, I, I was always so fascinated by reptiles. I grew up in New York City, and I had a tiny apartment. My parents didn't allow me to have a dog or a cat, so I stacked my room from floor to ceiling with reptiles. And that's really what got me into eventually becoming a veterinarian. Um, my fascination with, you know, their biology, their metabolism, um, you know, kind of everything about them. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like a very similar uh, story that a lot of us share about, you know, finding this at a young age and then having it just be a part of our lives and then eventually we wind up doing something uh, along the lines of, you know, we find we find a way to, incorporated into our lives somehow. And um, do, you, do you see a lot of, in your practice, do you do a lot of work with reptiles? Well, in, in practice, not so much. But I am the veterinarian for a museum, a local live museum uh, in Fort Lauderdale called the Museum of Discovery and Science. And they have a very large reptile collection. Um, and I have mm-hmm. been the uh, attending veterinarian of a few... Um, reptile supply um, places. So I, I get my mm. fair share of reptile patients. Mm. Cool. Nice. I but actually on that line of, of thinking is that, you know, you're so right. Uh, you know, we're in some way bound to these animals at a young age. Um, but the thing is, is that usually it's men that have this you know, fascination with reptiles. And I'm kind of curious, you know, since, you know, Mandy's here, you know, how did she get into reptiles? Well, 
That's a great question. Uh, thank you. Um, I actually have to kind of give all of the credit to two people. Um, first, I would have to say uh, my mom, actually. And it's kind of a two-parter. The second would be my grandfather, my pap. Um, he, of course, raised my mom, which I think is why she got me um, into reptiles when I was, oh, I think I was two. I can't remember his name because I was two. But my mom had, I believe it was like an emerald swift or some sort of like a fence lizard. And he was, I, I was in love with it. I loved to watch it run across the bed really fast and feed him crickets. And I absolutely fell in love with this little. And then when I got older, I decided that one day we were down at the pet shop. I mean, I had hamsters and dogs, but I was at a pet shop and they had... Oh, gosh. They had a Knowles, which I was pronouncing wrong, um, because, I, I mean, I was, like, probably, I think I was maybe seven, maybe ten, something, really young. And I got, that was my first actual pet reptile of my own to care for was um, a little green anole. And then with my pap, um, he actually... I I would I mean I I was with him when I was younger all the time like my dad pretty much and he would take me out fishing and hunting and just being out in the wilderness we would catch toads and snakes and fish and I mean you name it anything you can find in Pennsylvania and I was just in love with, I don't know, I'm just a special kind of woman, I guess. Like, <laughs> I was always the chick, like, hey, I found a snake. And all these guys are out there fishing, like, what is this little girl doing with this garter snake? Like, what? And they were afraid of it. And I'm like, yeah, I caught a snake. <laughs> but well, now well, that's how tell, I got. <laughs> well, please tell all of your girlfriends how great it is to you know, be involved with reptiles. I think, I think right. women in general bring a sensitivity and a lot to the hobby that is missing because it's such a, you know, a male-dominated, um, you know, hobby. Uh, what, what do you think yeah. about that, Dave? Yeah, no, definitely, John. And yeah. I got to tell you, I think more and more people today, uh, more and more women are getting involved. And a lot of us, uh, especially myself and a lot of the people that I associate with, we definitely make it a goal of ours to get others involved, and I always tell people at least get one other person involved because then we double the, the community just in, you oh, know, yeah. exponentially. And um, so, yeah, but I'm definitely seeing a trend where a lot more women are, you know, uh, getting involved. They're not afraid of these animals. And I think it's it has to do, like, with Mandy's situation where, you know, the parents, John, are educating the, the kids to not be afraid of these, to, you know, to just just have a different outlook. Back in the day, you know, things were different. Uh, reptiles were feared and um, you know, there was a lot less people involved. So uh, I think we're among the lucky people and one of our responsibilities is to pass that, that, that uh, you know, on to others and not keep it all to ourselves. So Yeah, I, I, I really agree. I mean, you know, reptiles has added, you know, the study of reptiles has added so much, you know, education and, 
and you know so many lessons you know life lessons that you know young people and you know older people you know can can learn too but uh, you know i don't want to uh, belabor this point i guess you guys you know more want to hear about um, you know geckos and that sort of thing um so you know i didn't want to take away from you david no that's quite all right john um the direction of the show is going great um when i one of the, the main things that i want to talk about and i think is really important about gay geckos and i think we can we can start with this and then spin off of it. Um, I have Selsuma uh, grandis here, Madagascar, uh, giant bay geckos, and um, I noticed that they're in my office, and I noticed that they literally have their own way of communication. They have a language. They literally talk to each other with these little chirping noises. And that's one of the things about them that makes me think that they're maybe one of the more intelligent, I mean, I do believe all geckos have intelligence, but I think they're probably one of the ones that have increased intelligence, like tokes. And um, in your experience, um, what do you think this language is, and, and how do you think they're actually, what do you think they're communicating to each other? Well, yeah, good question. Well, there's been a lot of studies on um, lizard communication, and um, mm-hmm. some gentleman uh, wrote his thesis on it uh, for his master's, um, or maybe it was his uh, PhD, I should say. And he described all of the body language in um, uh, Oedura, which is a genus of gecko from Australia. And, mm-hmm. the body, and, and I, I read it, and the body language is very similar. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed in your geckos that they arm wave. Have you seen yours do that? Um, I think I have. I just haven't seen it that often. You know, I never yeah, it's not, really noticed it like that. It's not I, I've that seen often. Them do things now. Yeah, but it's it's much like a bearded dragon. A lot of people know that behavior in bearded dragons, um, <laughs> but they do have a very complex way of communicating body language through positioning of the body, arm waving, certain um, voices, squeaks. Uh, chirps, mm-hmm. uh, you know, almost quacks at time. Um, and this gentleman, this guy who was going for his PhD, he outlined what each one meant, um, mm-hmm. whether it was aggression, whether it was for breeding purposes, whether it was over some sort of dominance to occupy space. Um, and, uh, you know, I should post that on my, on my website for people to go and check out a link to that because, um, you know, you, you're going to learn a lot about what they're saying to one another. Oh, that would be great. I'd love to see that. Yeah, and it makes you be a better breeder, too, and keeper, because if you're getting this body language from the lizard saying, you know, I'm upset, you're invading my space, then maybe they need to be separated, or maybe you need to get a a different enclosure or add some visual barriers uh, so that Mm -hmm. the animals, you know, don't have stress since we're keeping them in, you know, know, a small uh, space, relatively. I only have one. So I don't see him talk to anybody but me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're training well, yours very well. <laughs> and before long, yeah. you'll probably be on the Geico commercial speaking English. So I, I, I think you're doing a good job of it. <laughs> well, so if, if day geckos are anything like leopard geckos, I'm sure, Mandy, you're going to have more in the future. In fact, I'm sure you will because sooner or later you're going to want to breed him to, to some get him a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. So, um yeah, I can see that happening. <laughs> um, you know, back in the day, John, we would collect we would collect reptiles, but we weren't always 
you know, I grew up in the 80s. I was born in 76. We had, we basically had stamp collections of reptiles, but we weren't so much into breeding them. Now that, now it's like, if you don't have a pair of something, it's like, all right, well, it's kind of like, all right, you just have a pet then, you know, but everybody wants to learn how to breed them and experience that. And, um, that, that's, that leads me into my next topic is as far as breeding day geckos goes in your experience, um, are they difficult to breed? Not at all. Um, as long as they're provided with their basic needs uh, in terms of the right temperature, um, you know, a good um, varied diet, um, you know, with uh, supplements, um, then they pretty much do it themselves. Um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the challenge is, is to, um, you know, create animals that are a little bit better than they were you know, before you started breeding them. And what I mean by that is is that, um, you know, there's a lot of people that don't breed responsibly, that they don't breed, um, they only breed for the greatest color, and they don't breed for for genetic diversity and strength, um, which is, you know, so important to move the hobby forward. Because if we mm-hmm. get into a situation of genetic bottlenecking, and what that means is, is that we're, 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 we're selecting out these traits that are only good to look at, but nothing else. That's doing a disservice, of course, to, you know, the community and herpeticultural and uh, uh, herpeticulture as, as a whole. Um, but they're, they're very simple to breed. But uh, more importantly, it's important to breed responsibly because they're so easy and not to breed siblings together and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and you know, right. that that's that's very, um, in the leopard gecko uh, community, a lot of breeders have line bred and selectively bred for different traits, and um, I've noticed in my experience that when acquiring certain animals, they're just, you know, they're they're not genetically strong. They, they, they're, they just, they're kind of like limp in your hand, and you know, I've noticed that in order to get that line better, I've had to do outcrossing into subspecies. We use pure subspecies for that. And um, so I can definitely appreciate the genetic bottlenecking that you're talking about. Now, when I look on your website, I, I see all these different types. I see uh, the redheads, the mustards, the blue, uh, blue bloods. Um, these, these morphs are incredible, John. Um, now, as far as genetic diversity, how do some of these traits work? And maybe you can go into a little bit about your experience with these different characteristics that you've discovered here. Yeah, well, uh, thanks. Thanks. That's a great question. Um, you know, just to move back one step, you know, when you see a leopard gecko that has this genetic bottleneck or it has this, you know, uh, you know selectively breeding over, overbred, you know, they have these small heads, they have problems with their eyes, uh, they, they don't eat as well, they don't grow as well. You know, disease aside, this is the type of animal that you're looking at. Now, day geckos, for the listeners out there that suffer from these problems, what we find is bulging eyes, um, crooked tails, and toe pads that don't operate correctly. Um, so those are the three things, major things that we're finding of animals that are uh, too selectively bred. Um, so mm. in terms of my animals, like, you know, how did I make all these morphs without, you know, getting them so um, inbred is because I always brought in new blood and I only took the best animals, the most robust animals, the animals with the greatest musculature, 
you know, the ones that laid big eggs and, and of course, culled out or removed um, any kind of um, negative mutation. And I, I have to say, I mean, I've read thousands and thousands of these things. Um, it, it's, it's not a problem in my collection. Um, it's probably because it's, you know, humongous. Um, I do know of collections that, uh, you know, it is a big problem. Mm. Yeah. And what, what about the um, like when you when you actually found like say I'm looking at the partial stripe here. Um, did you discover that it just hatched out on its own, or did you do it? Did you notice that when you paired a certain uh, characteristic together that you got that particular morph? Right. She came off of the blue blood line, um, and. Uh, basically, the, the the blue line is a is a really complicated one. You know, you would think, okay, I have two blue animals, and if I breed them together, then I'm going to get blue animals. Unfortunately, it's not the case at all. Um, you you might get a blue one, but more often than not, you'll get a more normal looking animal. Um, that animal has to be bred back to um, a real genetic patternless, or into a super red type animal. Um, also, animals that have um, large and um, in their iris, which is the little part inside their eye, it has a slightly different color. Also, the, their bellies have red stellation on their bellies. Um, so it's traits that you wouldn't think would come together to, do come together. Um, and that's really the challenge of breeding day geckos is that uh, you really got to find who's compatible with who. And a lot of them, I'm, I'm still... Go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to say, when, at what age or when do you find, when do you try and find out who's compatible with who as far as, like, their age and, and breeding, like getting the colonies set up? At what point do you put, like, like the one I have, when would be a good time to get him or start looking for a mate for him and, and introducing her? Right, so once you know for, you know, with a pretty high degree of certainty that it's either a male or a female, then, you know, obviously you want to buy the opposite right. sex. And that happens somewhere around, right. um, you know, about a year. Um, okay. And when you, the thing about them is that they, they, they can bond. They can form a pretty strong bond, and they can be in that right. bond for years and years and years. So if you get a companion for whoever you have, and they don't get along right away, then sometimes they do have to be removed and then put together mm-hmm. during breeding season, and then they're much more compatible. Uh-huh. And once they're bred once, they're usually more likely to stay together. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, reminds, now, John, reminds me a lot of, like, birds. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, and, um, and also the, the, the large Rachidactylus, like Rachidactylus lichianus, those... The, the, the big ones from, uh, you know, they uh, have a very similar situation. I used to breed those many years ago. And they will form this tight bond and remain together for years and years and years as well. No. Get the love. <laughs> <laughs> These um, eggs that they lay, John, Sorry, they're actually... I'm a girl. <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, the eggs they lay, John, are, are hard, right? They're not like a typical leathery leopard gecko egg. They're more along the lines of a chicken egg, but thinner shells, correct? Yeah, you're, you're totally correct. Um, 
I always had trouble hatching leopard gecko eggs when I was a kid. Um, I haven't had leopard geckos in many, many years. But, you know, it's because of that, uh, that parchment-like egg that they have. It was always tough for me to, you know, get them to hatch. These are, are, are simple. They're, they're much more uh, resistant to increases in humidity and direct contact with water, where, I mean, you could probably tell me ah. better, David, but direct contact with water with a leopard gecko egg can, can really uh, mean major problems. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. And they lay them in the weirdest places, right? Like they'll find <laughs> little nooks, yeah. nooks and crannies. Where do you find that they lay their eggs, John, in your, in your enclosures? Yeah, I mean, I use uh, bamboo. That's, that's a great um, place. Uh, you know, bamboo is just great for them to bask, uh, for them to use as cage furniture and also as hide spots and has and as lay spots. So it's kind of an all-in-one cage furniture. Um, then I started going towards this PVC because it lasted longer. Um, and I would use little uh, PVC um, boxes and things that they would get into that, that, that they seemed to like. It was easy for me to access the eggs. Um, but any kind of tight nook or cranny, um, they'll lay their eggs that has the right humidity. And when they find that, that area will turn into a communal spot where multiple females or the same female will go back to that same area and always lay there. And sometimes you'll find, you know, many clutches of eggs in these little nook, nooks and crannies because they're so favorable. Now, do, wow. they, do you leave them in the nooks and crannies? Like how in the world do you get the eggs out of the bamboo? Is that hard? Right. That's a good question. You know, I was just thinking about that um, earlier today. I can tell now, because I've been around it for so long, when they're ovulating. And what the ovulation is is these, their, their, their follicles um, on their ovaries get bigger. And when that happens, their body has a very distinct swelling that I can see. And uh, then what will happen is they'll kind of deflate, and then they'll get puffy again. And when that happens, I know that that female is going to be laying eggs soon. So on the second round, when that wow. animal deflates again, I know that eggs are somewhere in that enclosure. Uh, and do you do you remove them or and put them in an incubator, or do you leave them alone? Or yeah, I I do I do remove them because I want it to be a little bit more controlled. Uh, but certainly they've hatched out within the enclosure when I've you know missed them at times. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with leopard gecko eggs, we, we a lot of them are when we incubate we. Uh, temperature sex determine our our offspring and, and it's pretty fairly reliable it's not always 100 percent but um for instance you know we can incubate leopard geckos at 80 to 82 degrees and we'll get likely get mostly females and if we incubate at 86 or higher you know we're going to get mostly uh males since with uh day geckos do you notice any kind of, of temperature sex determination with them Yes, it is, but not as um, reliable as with uh, leopard geckos. Uh, and it's the mm-hmm. same situation, L- lower temperatures, females, higher temperatures, males. Higher temperatures also will be a shorter incubation period, too. Um, also, mm-hmm. it seems to have some effect on color as well, um, where mm-hmm. the, the hotter temperatures um, and actually the super low temperatures, interestingly enough, the, the extremes in temperatures um, may be a factor in, uh, in uh, coloring. Okay. And, and that was actually proven in, in leopard geckos. I don't, I don't know if you guys know that or not. Yes. Yeah, what, what, yeah there, there was a study. 
which part were you talking about, John? Oh, I was I was uh, ta- I was saying that um, in uh, leopard geckos, um, somebody um, did a, a nice uh, study where it took different incubation uh, temperatures and found that it definitely had an influence on the coloring of the skin. Of oh their, yes, of their yes. Skin. I'm sorry. Yeah, I missed that part. There was like a I couldn't hear you for a second. Okay. Yeah. No, I understand. Yeah, it was Ron Tremper, I believe, who uh, discovered that. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, what they do is they incubate. Um, they, basically, to get your, the best colored albinos, they incubate uh, females at 80 to 82 for the first three weeks. So this way, uh, the sex is locked in at that point. And then they uh, gradually move those eggs into a higher temperature so that they, the melanin color doesn't um, develop uh, too greatly in the, in the skin. And this way, they get brighter, lighter albino females. And uh, it's not so much necessary with males because you're incubating for males in a higher temperature anyway for most of the time, but uh, the lower temperature is definitely dark in the gecko. So I guess so you're saying that you've noticed that same type of effect with the day geckos being darker there, and lighter? There, there, could, there could be. At, at extreme temperatures, there could be something there. Yeah, it's going to mm-hmm. take uh, quite a bit more time to, to kind of figure it, to, uh, you know, figure it out because these guys are already so darn colorful and, and it's hard to uh, predict. Uh, <laughs> but we're, 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 we're working on it. Okay. Yeah, cool. Go ahead, Mandy. Oh, I... I, uh, I you go. <laughs> I know. All right. I, well, I'm, I'm curious... I, I second your your question about the some of the different um, genetics uh, possibilities of the different morphs. I know you were asking about stuff like that. Yeah. Well, the the one I okay, like sure. the most is is the blue blood, John. The blue bloods are incredible to me, and um, I have a blue blood here. At least I think it is. It's blue. It's got the turquoise on the sides. Um, it's not like a super blue like on your on your gallery page, but it's definitely a blue blood, it's, a, it's a visually. Um, I'm not sure if it came from your line. Actually, I think it did. <clears throat> Excuse me, because uh, the gecko, I got it from a person that uh, is working with your genetics up here. So I believe it is from your blue blood line. And um, now you said earlier that some of these genes are not like line-bred traits, but they're, it's kind of elusive how they work. How does the blue blood uh, gene work? Yeah, that's that's a uh, another one. That that whole blue line, um, like I said before, um, two blue animals does not produce a blue animal. That's that's known. Um, it requires some uh, subtle traits that, that if you really want the inside scoop, basically animals that have um, red on their belly, animals that have a light colored iris, patternless animals. Um, and animals that lay very large eggs to their body size. Those traits um, uh, has to do with the blue blood gene. Um, so blue, blue animals, when they're bred to animals that have those aforementioned uh, traits, uh, produce super, blue, super blues. Hmm. Okay. And, and about the cherry heads, how did they come out? They came from... Um, these animals that had an enormous amount of red uh, on their sides and on their head uh, uh, area and and on their neck. Um, you see, if you breed two crimsons together, you get a kind of a great crimson. 
but there's a there's a gene there that gets into the super crimson and into the cherry heads. Um, it, it's this gene that that um, the red is on the sides, um, and mm-hmm. it's not. It's more like a speckling, and it's not really in spots or bars or chevrons, but it's this this red speckling, which is which is key to um, you know developing ultimately you know a more solid red animal. Hmm. Wow. How far are you away from doing mm-hmm. that? Well, I thought I was going to have it about two years ago. And I'm probably now a couple, a couple more years away from it. Um, and, and that's why they're, you know, expensive, and that's why everyone wants them, um, because they, they, are, they are hard to, they are hard to uh, produce. Um, the, 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 the most reliable line is the crimson and super crimson line. Um, those ones, when you breed them together, you get more, you know, you get um, really spectacular offspring. Awesome. How did you get the um, the all yellow, the mustard? I saw I saw on your Facebook with the it's adorable, but <laughs> um, I was wondering how that came about. Same sort of thing, or <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in, interestingly enough, the, the most uh, you know what people would call boring morph, the patternless morph, actually has an abundance of genes in there. And um, uh-huh. that animal, uh, you know, was proven, this is probably about a six, seven-year project, um, with a, a certain patternless animal um, and a super crimson animal um, that, that had a lot of yellow in it um, made this what we're calling mustard morph. And uh, mm-hmm. i got to get a picture of one of these adults because I had uh, a couple of them last year. I sold some of them. Um, <laughs> But when you see a picture of the adult, it will just blow your mind. I mean, it's like a banana. Nice. Oh, wow. Oh, my kids love and bananas. What? Don't say that. A lizard and a banana. <laughs> <laughs> what about albinos, John? Any albinos? Yeah, so there, there was one that popped up, um, that, but I, to my knowledge, it did not survive. Um, okay. And there was a, and there was another one that popped up. Well, that was in this country, and then I think in Sweden one was uh, was bred, but I don't think it was Grandis. It was um, uh, Kachi, uh, one of the one of the other species. It looks very similar, but um, not the same genus. I mean, okay. not the same species. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question that pretty much pertains to. Uh, my group, one of my groups here, I have two groups of the, uh, Madagascar day geckers, uh, giants, and um, the one group of females get along very well. They're large, plump, established adults, and um, there are three, three that live together. And in the past, I introduced a male into there because uh, they looked like they were ovulating. They're, I noticed the swelling in their abdomens. And um, I introduced the male, and they went after him right away. Um, now, of course, I would really like to breed these because one of them in here is that turquoise one. She's beautiful. Um, and I actually want to talk to you about getting one from you, uh, maybe this week, John, or sometime. But um, what would be the best way to, to introduce a male to a group of females? And, um, and to, to, to it, you know, now that they're established and all, how can I get away with that without them going after them? Yeah. You, well, okay. So you have the females established, and you want to introduce a male. Is that it? Mm, yeah. 
Okay. What I would do is I would, because now those females have some dominance in, in that enclosure, I would kind of throw them off a bit by taking them out, putting them in a temporary enclosure, putting him in for a matter of days, let him get used to the area, then put those females back in. That'll kind of calm the waters. No one will be too possessive over certain areas, and that'll make the uh, introduction better. Okay. No, that, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, because I've seen what happens when when they fight. When I was younger, um, I had them. I saw that they fought, and their skin. See, that's something we should talk about definitely. Because there's a lot of people out there that are going to listen to the show, and they're going to think, okay, great, I want to get a day gecko now. Um, skin on these day geckos is so delicate. But I noticed when I was younger, there's two incidents. I noticed them fighting, and one got out, and um, I actually. Uh, I, th- I believe it's so long ago. I believe I injured it slightly when I grabbed it to, to, to capture it and put it back in its tank. That it's when it squirmed, its skin ripped, um, and you could actually see the muscle underneath. Um, and it took took some time for that to heal. Uh, but John, you know more about their skin and the interesting things about it. I remember you telling us some of the things about it on the previous show. Um, can you go into a little bit about that? Yeah, well, you know, wild-caught animals and flighty animals, they are more likely to slough their skin than a captive-bred one that's been raised up, especially an adult. Like, I can hold an adult in my hand, and because it's used to me, it won't slough its skin. So they slough their skin, you know, as you know, out of a a very um, severe defense mechanism. Like, I need to get rid of my skin so I can get away from this predator. Um, you know, captive-bred animals in general don't do that. Um, you know, they don't drop their tail. They're not as delicate as people make them to be. Um, when you have, though, to answer your question, when you have a male, though, that is aggressively breeding a female, yes, you can, um, you know, that, that female can go through that, mm, this is really not good, I'm going to slough my skin, or he could be so strong because he's so much bigger than her, actually rip the skin off. Yeah. Um, but as you found, I, I, I remember talking about this last show, um, they have an incredible ability to heal. Um, I'm sure when you saw this gaping hole in your lizard, you're like, oh, this, is, this could be catastrophic. Oh, I freaked out. Yeah, but it's not the case at all. Um, their immune system is, is very capable of dealing with very large wounds um, and without any treatment. Um, without any antibiotics or any kind of ointments or salves, salves or anything to put on those wounds. I mean, they have adapted to, you know, uh, heal themselves with these sometimes massive wounds. Um, they don't heal like people do. Like if we got a big gash like that, we would heal from the outside in. Well, they can, and I'm sure you noticed this when you were, when you were younger, they can initiate healing anywhere within their wound. So that makes the healing process much quicker than, you know, a person. Wow, they must be doing studies about that too, I would think, right? Well, I would hope so. Um, yeah, I mean, it could have a lot of application for human healing and other animal healing and that, and, and that sort of thing. Um, it, it's, it's really a, a fascinating part of their biology and their immunology. Um, to my knowledge, there's no other animal, and maybe somebody of the guests might weigh in here on the um, on this uh, on, on this blog area or whatever whatever you call it. 
Um, you know, it's they the have chat knowledge. Box. Yeah, chat room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the, the chat room. If they have knowledge of um, any animal that can initiate healing, you know, randomly like that uh, within the wound site, we'll let them let them see see what they come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. absolutely. Well, John, we're coming up on the mid-show uh, break, and uh, we'll go ahead and take that now. And for everybody out in the chat room, for all everybody that's listening, uh, the second half of the show, we'll take call uh, t- take your questions. If you guys would like to call in, the number is six four six four seven eight five three three one. Feel free to call in with your questions, and uh, we'll be right back. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by abdragons.com. is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. Razor Sharp Reptiles. Like the name suggests, Jamie Carnes has some sharp gecko and snake projects in the works. He is very well known for his work with rare species such as cave geckos, but also has some of the prettiest radar projects I've ever seen. Razor Sharp Reptiles is also known for high-end fat tails and beautiful rainwater leopard gecko morph projects. Check out RazorSharpReptiles.com online and on Facebook. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need, from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We are speaking with uh, John Klarsfeld from giantgaygecko.com, and he is also a reptile uh, veterinarian. And um, we, we have a caller on the line from the 816 area code. We're going to go ahead and take this call. 816, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hi, caller. You there? Oh, you're eight. I guess you're not. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes this phone system thing doesn't work too good. Um, 
John, I have a lot of questions about uh, your your site. Your site is just like a wealth of knowledge. Um, you have care sheets. You have picture of the week. You have video of the month. You have postcards from the field, live video, gecko cams. Um, you have gecko gear, research projects, all these awesome, awesome uh, different things that people can look up, facility facts. Um, when you were putting together your site, my question is, what was your mission? Were you trying to become the one-stop shop for day geckos or what? Well, I guess it's obvious that I'm pretty much obsessed with this species. <laughs> um, and, you know, I just want to share with other people how awesome they are and, you know, what a great pet they make and what, how, what you can learn from them and all that sort of thing. So I, I wanted, you know, to build it for somebody who had an interest. And, you know, whether it was a superficial interest, just, oh, you know, I want to see what the Geico gecko looks like, or somebody who really gets into it and really wants to make, you know, a hobby of it or study them. And I wanted to give them, you know, enough information that it, it had some depth. Um, because that's always what I wanted, being a hobbyist. You know, I wanted, um, you know, I was always more, I always wanted more information. Um, so, you know, I tried to, I tried to make it as... Um, you know, information heavy as possible, but at the same time, very user friendly. Well, that's yeah. I definitely noticed that. And when we were making, uh, when Steve made your um, your intro video, I saw that he pulled some footage from some of these uh, videos of yours, and they're excellent, by the way. And uh, if you guys want to check out his his videos and um, the live gecko cam and whatnot, definitely check out his website. Again, it's giantdaygecko.com. Um, John, when you for somebody that's new in the hobby, and you know they're chiming into the show tonight, or they're looking at geckos and they say, "Wow, these are so colorful, these are so beautiful. I definitely want one of these." Um, well, how do you recommend a new hobbyist go about um, setting up a, a cage or a terrarium for a day gecko? Yeah, well, the, the good thing about them is is that they, they are a beginner species. Um, they you know, are hardy enough and, and, you know, they have the right attributes where, you know, they're hardy, they have a very, very diet, um, you know, they don't have to be kept so strictly. They're, they're, they're not a delicate species at all. So, um, you know, if you make a couple of mistakes, they will be able to tolerate it. Um, but you don't want to make those mistakes for too long. So, you mm -hmm. know, the first thing to do is to read a care sheet. You know, it's about a, a, a page long. Uh, you know, if that gets your interest enough, um, and you want to learn a little more, read the Reptiles article magazine um, in April 2012 edition of Reptiles magazine. That, that tells you everything you need to know to kind of keep them. Um, but to answer your question, you can go about it basically two ways. You could do you know, very, very simple um, with not much cage furniture, uh, which would decrease your maintenance you know, uh, chores there. Uh, or you can make it into a living terrarium and put it a centerpiece in your living room and make it really, you know, a form of art. Um, both this species thrives in um, and will breed. Now, um, and do I don't you, think they... Sorry. Go ahead. Oh, uh, do you have any, like, specific plants that you recommend in, like, if you'd want to make it an elaborate... Like any particular plants that they can't have that they like more or less. Well, because they're heavy uh, and they can get up to ten inches long, 
Um, right. you, know, you don't want anything leafy that they, that they can't climb on. I mean, for decoration, that's fine, but probably the most well-known plant is the snake plant uh, because okay. they can um, you know, sit on that leaf and it's strong enough to hold, hold their weight. So that, that, that's a great one. Um, and John, what do, these, what do these guys eat for the beginners out there? Sure. So they, the, the crazy thing about them is, is that they have this varied diet, varied diet. So if you can't get to the you know, pet supermarket or Petco or wherever you go to get your crickets, whether you order them online, um, they can eat a fruit mix. Um, so I feed mine crickets one to two, sometimes three times a week. Um, and I give them some kind of fruit puree um, one to two times a week as well. And mm-hmm. um, if they're given the opportunity, I mean, a large one would even eat a small mammal, um, like a little pinky mouse or something like that. Um, if another lizard goes in there, they could even devour a small lizard. I mean, they, they have ravenous appetites, and they're pretty indiscriminate with what they eat. <laughs> I've noticed mine, that. Mine loves um, the dubia. <laughs> yeah, oh, dubia, that's right. Uh, yep. I know, they, they pretty much eat anything that moves. That's what I've seen. Um, I noticed that you keep your, you know, you're down in Florida, which is ideal conditions uh, to keep reptiles outside. Um, I, I love the way your cages are constructed. I'm looking at pictures on your website right now. Can you tell us a little bit about how you, you, you build your cages, John? Sure. So when I first moved here, it was a really bad hurricane season. And the you know, typical screen chameleon cages that you see at reptile expos all the time, they, they got destroyed. So I needed to manufacture something um, and engineer something that could withstand high winds. Um, mm-hmm. So I came up with this idea with this aluminum structure with a PVC-coated um, plastic, um, I guess it's a quarter-inch uh, screen so that crickets can't get out, or at least adult crickets can't get out. And they are riveted in place where literally these cages can go through a hurricane where I don't have to move them inside. And I'm not uh, uh, fearful of the, uh, the lizards if, if they're uh, left inside. Mm-hmm. Um, a well-fed day gecko, from what I've seen, usually develops these little pockets on the sides of their face. And with leopard geckos, we've seen it where they get these little bubbles under their armpits. Um, a lot of people think this is something, you know, oh, no, my, my, my gecko's sick. What am I going to do now? Um, but that's pretty much not the case. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? Sure. Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, the, these pockets under the armpits, at least in day geckos, I haven't seen that too often except when they get really obese where they will lay down a fat pad in, in, in that area. But the, the mm-hmm. sacs um, on either side of the jowl area behind the ear, those are called endolymphatic sacs or calcium sacs, they're nicknamed. And they are a storage area for calcium. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought this up because people think that large calcium stat, sacs or calcium stores could be a sign of health. It's, that's not true. Um, these uh, calcium okay. sacs should get big, but then also be depleted. And it's a constant metabolism of this calcium in there. And when they harden and get huge and stay hard and get pendulous, that's actually a bit of a disease state. Mm. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, and it means okay. that you're probably over supplementing with um, uh, vitamin D3 uh, or um, maybe you know calcium. Okay. All right. Looks like we have a. Um, oh no, it's the same caller from before. It's not going to work. Um, okay. Now, that's the, my, my next question was going to be about supplementation. Now you can overdo supplementation, of course. Um, and now your your guys are mostly outside, so they're getting natural sunlight. For someone that's keeping a day gecko indoors, John, uh, what do you recommend as far as supplementation? Any particular yeah. types or brands or or you know different um, uh, mixtures or whatever? I I have one that's a favorite of mine, and I don't have any you know full disclosure. I don't have any stock in a company. <laughs> company um, <laughs> it is. Uh, you know, the RepCal with vitamin D3, the ultra-fine powder made by RepCal um, with vitamin D3 in it. And that product, and I've studied them, and I've used all of the products over the years of being a veterinarian uh, and being a keeper, that product, in my opinion, performs much better than what else is, is out there, uh, especially for day geckos. Um, so I'll use that. I'll dust the crickets with that every feeding. Um, it is important at every feeding. Even in the sun, they still benefit from that because we, we're keeping these geckos to, you know, breed them, and they need to be as nutritionally capable of doing that. Um, so they need a, a little bit of boost at times. Um, so I'll, get, I'll do that, and I'll also use the Herpvite product, also by RepCal, but I'll only use that about once a week. Another thing, maybe from a veterinarian standpoint, um, in, the, in the leopard gecko world, there's, there's some, I don't know if it's controversy, but there's definitely differences in opinions on calcium supplementation with leopard geckos. Now, um, I just want to explain my views on it, and then you can chime in and tell me how you feel. Um, I use, a lot of people take the stance that, okay, leopard geckos are nocturnal, so they don't get sunlight, so they don't need vitamin D3 in their calcium. Now, I always use, the calcium with vitamin D3, and I stand behind RepCal 100% because it's, and I don't have stock in the company either, but I've been using it since I'm a kid, so I'm just stuck with them, <laughs> and I'll always use it. But um, my point is, I always use the calcium with D3, John, because I believe that leopard geckos in nature, yes, they're nocturnal, but they got to be getting D3 from some source, and keeping them in captivity, they're not getting it how they would normally get it in the wild, so I feel that supplementing and with D3 is necessary. What, what are your feelings on it? Yeah, I've got the, pretty much the same feeling as you, and, and, and I think more by trial and error, you found that when you supplement them with D3, they're healthier, they breed better, they recover after egg laying better, all of these things, you know, performance-wise that, that, we're, that we're looking for, um, you know, add up. The reason for it, I'm not sure. I'm sure it has something to do with whatever minerals are taking in from the soil, you know, um, uh, other exposure to, you know, you, you know UV light um, that, you know, they're uh, getting. Um, but I feel that this vitamin is a very important vitamin, not only for diurnal, um, you know, animals that come out during the day, but also for, you know, nocturnal because it has its hand in um, ovulation and in spermiogenesis, which is the creation of sperm, um, uh, so, so you know, you found the benefits are, are, are obvious. Too, and I'm like, well, you know, listen, maybe they're getting <laughs> the calcium, maybe they're getting the calcium from a type of insect that they eat in, in 
in that area, in the Middle Eastern area. You know what I mean? Um, you know, it's, and some people say that are on my side say, well, maybe it's reflected off of moonlight. They can get some of these free that way too. And, you know, maybe it's possible, but um, the bottom line is I just feel they, they absolutely need it. And yeah, you would, well, let, I, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a problem of any kind of calci, uh, calcification of organs or because this is what you would see if you were over-supplementing? Right, yeah, no, I've never had any issues like that. You know, the only issues right. as a breeder that I've had over the years um, are with leopard geckos. I had a couple females that just didn't bounce back well from breeding. Um, you know, you know, normal breeder issues. And, uh, right. yeah, nothing, nothing like that, John. Yeah. You would think yeah. that, I mean, if it's, even if the diurnal species need D3, you would think that regardless of whether they're nocturnal, that they would still need it to properly, like, I mean, I, I would assume they would still need it somehow. Yeah, I mean, this controversy yeah. has been going on since I was a, a kid, and it will, <laughs> you know, continue to probably go on for many, many years once I'm gone, too. Um, but I think it comes down to the people that are really experienced with these animals. You know, they kind of know the best, and they know what works, and they know what doesn't work. And, you know, kind of explaining it, sometimes it's not as important of getting down to, like, the biological mechanism that's happening, but we know that there's a benefit. Um, and we go with that. Yeah, no, that's, that's it. Yeah, right, we can only do what we can do, and we learn along the way. John, do you do any kind of uh, education uh down in Florida as far as um, reptile-related stuff? Oh, yeah, all, all the time. Um, you know, like I said, I'm the veterinarian for the Museum of Discovery and Science in Fort Lauderdale. If you guys, if, you know, the listeners are, listeners are ever down in, this, in South Florida on vacation, you know, please check out that museum. It's awesome. Um, actually, the gecko exhibit left there about uh, four or five months ago, which is a great exhibit. Um, I donated some of my geckos there, so upstairs there's a huge enclosure with a whole bunch of day geckos up there. Um, it's it's a great place to go, and I I, I talk there, and um, you know I'm I'm very active in the uh, local community here. Awesome, cool. that's cool. Do you breed any other or keep any other types of uh, geckos besides uh, day geckos? I don't anymore. Um, I mean, in younger years, I've kept you know monitors and different um, agamids and many other geckos and wrote many articles, uh, scientific and, you know, in just lay people uh, 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 magazines. Um, but now my collection is, is, and my focus is totally on this one species. I, I feel that, you know, having a collection is great, but, but it, it requires, you know, people to get very, very specialized and, um, to be able to kind of push uh, one specific group you know, more than a, many people would. I guess it's just my, my theory on, on, on the subject. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think we need more, more specialists. We need more experts on, you know, certain species. And monitors, you know, for sure. Definitely the geckos, a bunch of the uh, uh, different uh, uh, iguanas, especially the cycloras. Um, you know, people have these collections and they're, and they're happy to have many, many different representations, but, you know, I, I, I feel that people should start specializing. What do you think about that, David? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, with leopard geckos, as you know, John, there is uh, just a plethora of leopard gecko breeders today. And while I think that's an excellent thing, 
a lot of us are, you know, developing certain traits that we really like the best. And we're seeing what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of specialized uh, breeding projects, like certain people breeding really nice uh, rainwaters and really nice bell albinos, for instance. And um, you know, the diversity is great, but then the focus is also uh, on these certain types and making them better. And what we're seeing now in the ball python market is we're seeing a drastic reduce, reduction in pricing. Um, they're calling it the market crash for ball pythons, and that may or may you know, be the case. But what I think is going to happen is it's now going to give access to more hobbyists that want to invest in uh, you know, specific morphs of ball pythons. And instead of having all these morphs, you're going to see, start seeing more selectively bred versions of Mojaves and, you know, albinos and stuff. So, um, and I think that's a good thing because now we're going to start seeing the true potential of some of these morphs and see where um, the art part of it can come in because this is living art to a lot of us. And, you know, if, if, we, if you're a good artist, you can certainly, you know, improve your craft and improve your artwork. And, you know, John, you can you know what I'm talking about because I look on your site and I can see your your vision. I can see what you're going for. I can see your your talents, and you know it's it's quite obvious. And I and I, you know people can look at my headphones and they can see you know what I'm going for. So how do you feel about that? Is do you do you consider it an art? You know that's an interesting concept to me. Um, you know, I've never thought of it that way, really. I mean, I see the animals as a form of, you know, living art, but I, I don't know if what I do is art. I, I find it to be more, you know, scientific and kind of um, uh, more um, methodical about going about breeding them. And I, I guess, you know, a lot of people nowadays that are getting into the hobby, you know, they, you know, they love the animals and that's great, but they also want to breed them and they want the hobby to pay for itself. And, you know, they're looking at it more of an investment than, you know, many, many years ago when it was more, you know, just to have a pet. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're going to look at things like that, like many, many people do, because they ask me about this often, is that you kind of have to look at the market from, you know, t- take a step back and say, okay, well, um, you know, let's look at the ball python market, like, you know, you're, you're saying that, um, you know, what's the next thing? Because to be successful in the market... Uh, you have to predict what's going to be, you know, next. Um, you know, in my opinion, of course, it's a very biased one. I feel that day geckos um, are a very important part of the reptile market because this is an animal that can be in somebody's home. It can be enjoyed as a pet. It can be enjoyed as breeding. We definitely need more breeders. That goes without saying. I can't keep up with demand, um, especially of these specialty type morphs. Um, but it, it, it's fun to talk about the direction of the reptile market, much like any other market, whether it's housing or, you know, real, uh, you know stock market or, or, you know, otherwise. Um, but where will it be in five years? My hope is is that uh, it'll be in specialization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have I a agree. question for you, John. Kind of off topic of markets. Um have you ever heard of <laughs> any other species, um, whether it be lizards, frogs, anything, um, successfully cohabitating with the day geckos? Oh, yeah, I get question. that question a lot, and it is a great question. Yes, um, you know, 
in my opinion, you'd want to use the species that naturally occur with them, right. um, which would be the northern part of tropical Madagascar. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people want to put um, dendrobates, the arrow frogs or dart frogs, in with them right. because of the color combinations in that. Um, and mm-hmm. they probably can co-inhabit. You might get the occasional, you know, nip and that and that sort of thing. Um, but if they're right. they're well fed and if they're of the appropriate size and they have their own location within your little ecosystem of your terrarium, then um, you know I think it's great to cohabitate uh, species. Nice. Yeah, I I myself was thinking of that. Um, with wanting to build a large enclosure for them, I thought it'd be kind of nice to have some sort of, like a possible dart frog or like something, a different species to have like a real naturalistic um, terrarium type setup. I like yeah, I, I like that idea. Yeah, I think the big thing is, is that you want to try to keep them as close size-wise as possible. Right. Yeah, you don't want your lizard trying yeah. to eat your frog. Right, so like a small bay gecko <laughs> with a arrow frog would be okay. But as that okay. giant bay gecko gets larger, you know, a bigger adult, then that that small arrow frog might not be appropriate. Okay. Yeah. Well, that and to make sure that they have their own like visual barriers and their own kind of if it's big enough for them to hide and get away and stuff like that then they'd probably thrive better than, like, if they don't. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're trying to make nature, and, you know, yeah. is there a predatory response there going to happen? You know, I, I guess it's partially the personality of the gecko. I mean, there are right. adult, you know, day geckos that will eat their offspring. There's others that will not touch them. Um, you know, what's right. the difference? Why does that happen? I, I, I don't know. It's just the individual gecko, I would think. Right. Hey, John, do you see any of these uh, wild down in Florida or anybody, has have they been released or, um, you know, basically been let loose in Florida? Yeah, there is a population in, um, in the Florida Keys that okay. um, now, for the most part, uh, via commercial reptile collectors, and there's quite a few in South Florida, they've been eliminated from the locations that were published, um, which wasn't so cool for me because I was actually studying what parasites they carry, um, and now that the population is gone, I can't complete that that study. So that's kind of a a negative for me, what I was doing. Um, There are still populations there on private property that people, you know, who collect them, you know, can't access. Um... But in general, the, the, the obvious that, um, populations have been um, collected out. Okay. Um, when we were speaking last on the last show, we talked a little bit about um, some of the things that could be dangerous to these geckos out in nature. And, and you were telling us a little bit about uh, the ants and stuff down there. Now, now, fire ants are a huge problem in Florida. How do you keep um, the fire ants from not bothering your geckos? Huh. That's an interesting question. I mean, I know it's, it is a, a big problem. I haven't faced that problem. The only time that the ants kind of come around and are a problem are with the crickets. And I have to keep mm-hmm. the crickets, you know, on a chair with, 
you know, little cups of water underneath the chair so that the ants can't get to them. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they don't bother the geckos. Now, if, um, you know, there's a fatality... <laughs> no, they definitely don't eat them. Or at least I've no. never seen that. Um, you know, ants have got a certain amount of, like, ammonia or something in there that it takes kind of right. a specialty lizard, like a, you know, a... a um, a horned lizard, you know, in the southwest, right. and like a moloch in Australia, they 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 eat ants, but um, I, I, day geckos don't 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 eat ants. I don't recommend somebody trying to eat your day gecko one. My my little guy, he uh, there was actually some type of like a flying ant that managed to get in through. I don't know if it was a window or how it got into into the room. It was, I noticed he was like attacking the glass and I was like what what are you doing and yeah. here he was trying to attack the ant but I, I don't think he would have successfully eaten it if he tried it he just thought well, he wanted to eat it <laughs> well they will eat termites um, and termites do fly and they look like an ant so it, it could have been a termite because every year oh, around goodness. the same time it's a huge <laughs> problem with termites in, in South Florida and when they kind of swarm and move from house to house the day geckos huh. go crazy because the termites can get through the um, the little quarter-inch screen, and the the, the, okay. the day geckos do do eat them. Interesting. Mm. Interesting. I hope it wasn't a termite. <laughs> <laughs> hey John, a lot of people, um, you know, they like they like pets that they can take out and hold and handle, and you know, we were talking a little bit about how this isn't always that type of pet, um, but on the flip side, you. You've become very accustomed to your animals where you were telling us that uh, you can take them out, you can, um, you know, they'll sit on your finger outside of the cage and you're really not worried about them jumping and running away from you and you're able to move stuff around in there. Um, Is there a way to train them or uh, get them to be more comfortable with you? Yeah, I mean, Amanda probably has some good experience here. But in general, you know, when they're small, they are more flighty just because, you know, they're small and they don't understand that you're there to feed them and not right. harm them. Um, but mm-hmm. in short order, once they get to about a year old, they're eating from your hand. Um, once they've made that conversion that, you know, you mean food and that you mean them no harm, that, you know, they will come out on your hand. Um, I would say the majority of them um, are, are like that. Um, there are the exceptional few, you know, maybe five, ten percent that you can actually handle, like a bearded dragon. Hmm. Interesting. Is there any specific way that you would recommend handling them, or training them, yeah. trying to get them, you know, out there, out on the, yeah. out of the cage? Yeah. Well, I would tempt them with food, just like how Amanda said in the beginning, how she puts the little fruit mix on her fingers, and they'll come out and lick mm-hmm. it, and just kind of move it they farther and farther up your arm. And they will just walk out and, and lick it. And then they'll dash back in. And then, you know, as that bond is, is formed, they're, they're, they're gonna, when you open the cage, they're going to jump on you. Yep. And, yeah, <laughs> and, and that's what mine do all the time. I mean, they get out all the time, but then they jump right back uh-huh. in. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yep. <laughs> if, one, if, if one should get out on you, what's the best way to recapture them without injuring them? I would, uh, well, mine, I will just take a cricket and I'll just throw it in the cage and then they'll run back in the cage and, and do it. Or I'll gently kind of corral him back in. But mm-hmm. um, in general, if they really kind of take off on you in your house, get a deli cup and just put the deli cup 
right over the lizard on a wall or a piece of glass or if it's on the floor or wherever. Or if you're like yeah. me and you have different types of nets all over your <laughs> I've got so many different types of nets. So just kind of, well, not like a nice soft net. <laughs> like a fish net? I mean, yeah, you, you can get it. Yeah. If you could get, I've never used a net, but if you could get a net right over him like that, right. then I, I, I guess it would work in getting him out of the net and freaking out in there. I've always used a like a, <laughs> one of those large deli deli cups. It it, it seems to work well because they can kind of see in there. They don't feel like they're being like, um, you know, like a bag put over their head, and and they they seem to do fine with it. I mean, when they're when they're little, sure, they're 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 flighty and they can go far kind of quick. So you have you have to you know be on your toes and move quickly. <laughs> you know, I yeah, remember a specific time one of these got out on me when I was younger, and uh, he was so fast. That that thing ran across the ceiling upside down, John. <laughs> Can you imagine? I couldn't believe I, it. It, it. That's it kind of why I was saying a net. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, did you get them, or did eventually, because a lot of times they'll come yeah, back no. towards the aquarium when they feel comfortable. Yeah, no, I, I remember I got them. I think I used a fishnet or something. It was years ago. So, you know, I was younger. Um, but yeah, I, I'll never forget that. Um, it was it was the, it was the craziest thing, and I mean that that brings me to my next question. A lot of people think that day geckos have suction cups on their hands, on their on their fingers, but that's not really the case when you look at them under a, a microscope, right? Yeah, you're you're exactly right. Um, what they have is little microscopic cilia or hairs there, and mm-hmm. uh, those little hairs, um, you know, even a very flat piece of glass has cracks in it. Um, when you would use a electron microscope, a very high-powered microscope, if you look at a piece of glass, it'll have these cracks and crevices in it. And those little hairs, those little microscopic hairs, cilia, they will sit into those cracks and crevices. And it, it's not a suction cup at all, but it's, it's this, um, these little hooks, these little, little hairs that are, that are hold, holding them on. Wow. That's amazing. That really is. And, and that's, that brings me to a story I think I heard where um, they were trying to develop some type of, I think Steve was telling us about this story perhaps, uh, where they were trying to develop some type of new Velcro or something along this, this, along this theory. Uh, have you heard anything about that type of stuff, John? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot. I mean, um, I, I think that made some national news, really. I think I remember reading it maybe in like a New York Times article or something. But, um, you know, the, the latest and greatest, you know, biomedical find it from reptiles is there's a new diabetic drug that is helping, you know, you know a large population of people uh, to fight diabetes. It came from uh, some component of the uh, Gila monster, um, Heloderma mm-hmm. suspectum, um, you know, which is a venomous um, lizard in the southwest. Um, and, and that got a lot of media, and and that um, so 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 that's you know very good for our um, our uh, community. Yeah, definitely. And if, and if a day gecko should lose its tail or drop its tail, um, for people that don't know, will it grow back and grow back normally? It it will grow back, but not normally. But over time, um, it'll it'll appear to be more normal. Um, there there will be a um, a, a slight difference in the scalation. Mm-hmm. 
not as severe you know, as like a leopard gecko, but you know how they it's very smooth the leopard gecko tail after it if it um, exfoliates, but um, it, it, so it's much more subtle than that. But it will go back. Oh yeah, you know I I see um, Derek. What's up, Derek? I'm giving a shout out. Uh, Derek is in the chat room. He's a, a day gecko breeder as well. I've gotten several geckos uh, from him actually, and um, he he has some. Patternless day geckos. They're lacking um, all red markings, pretty much, and um, they're not that subspecies type. They're, you know, they're the giants, the Madagascar giants. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the deal, deal with the patternless uh, gene, John? Is it an actual gene, or is it just something else? What do you think? Yeah, uh, maybe Derek. I don't know if if he's on the phone or he's in that that chat room. Um, it's yeah, he's usually in the chat. emails. Yeah, see, see if he can make a note there. Does he have a patternless male? Because patternless males are very, very rare. Um, th- that's kind of an important gene. If you have a oh. patternless male, I'd like it. Oh, um, man. <laughs> I got rid of one. Can you believe that? I, I got scan. <laughs> I had one. It, it, I had it, a was, it was a male? Yeah, and it, I got it from Derek, too. Derek will remember. Uh, he's He's got to be listening. Yeah, here he goes. He says, I still kick myself for selling that big male pattern with the babe. Yes, and oh, yeah. I sold it go. in turn. Yeah, I didn't need yes. it at the time. I had I had a male at the time. And, yeah, uh, so a oh, lot of people don't myself. know how valuable that gene is. But I'm curious, you guys, did you guys ever breed it? And what came of it? Who did you breed it with? Okay. No, I did, didn't. Did but see if Derek makes a comment about it because it would be interesting to me because even when you breed a pattern list to like a normal one, Sometimes you'll get like a very color, colorful um, animal. Hey Derek, why don't you call in real quick if you can? Um, just shoot me your, uh, or we can call you if you want to. If you want, I'll give you a call right now on the on the phone. He, just let me know. He said he didn't. He said he didn't breed it. Yeah. No, he oh, didn't. That, that's, that's that's too bad because I, if you did, you probably would have been pretty surprised with what you got. One of my most special breeders was a, a big patternless male. I mean, he was—he he got so old, he eventually passed. Um, and he made some very interesting, um, and, uh, you know, offspring. But uh, in general, to answer your question, they—they're uh, usually females. There, there's two forms of it. There's a, a, a true patternless genetic one, and then there's one that's just like you can actually see the red dots kind of underneath. They're 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 still there. I've got a couple of pictures of those on my website. Those aren't genetically really worth much. Um, it's the ones that are the true patternless that have a slight yellow tinge to them. Those are key animals. Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I'm sure that if he was producing, um, if he produced at least one patternless, then it must be in his group. Um, okay. He says sure. I'm going to give him a call. Let's see what he oh, has to good. say. Yeah, that, that name sounds f- familiar, Derek. I mean, it's, I'm sure I've seen him on the Facebook and places like that. Maybe geckos on the Yeah, he's a yeah, he's a big gecko guy. I'm sure he has. I'm sure he has uh, been there. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Let me just get his number right. Okay. Yeah, I like cool this to get him. feature. I like this feature where we can call people live on the air. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Hey, hey Dave, Derek. how's it going? Good. Thanks hey, for coming on the air. All right. Uh, sure, not a problem. Hey, 
Yeah, we have some questions about your um, your, your projects with the day geckos, and uh, especially specifically the patternless. Um, what's your experience with that? The patternless came from a male that I still have and a female that I no longer have. She passed. Uh, the male oh. I've actually had since December of '01, so uh, he's been hanging in there pretty strong. So I'm pretty excited to. Uh, you know, get a nice pairing with him this year because uh, I feel like I'm on borrowed time with him. Hmm. You, you, How yeah, long well, do they breed for, John? Uh, say, say, I was just curious, why didn't you give Derek the warm Gekonian welcome like you do to all your other guests? <laughs> oh, Derek, I he, started he, to. <laughs> I, you know, it's weird. I kind of just called him and I wasn't thinking to do that, but yes. Uh, Derek, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Excellent. So, so Derek, this this male that you have, um, you you still have the male, and you're thinking about breeding it with a, a female that that you have as well. Yeah, I have. I was thinking about trying to breed him. He's a pretty normal. Uh, I was looking to breed him to a high red blue baseline. Uh, looking female that I have. Yeah, that's a great idea. Let me ask you, the male, does, can you see kind of through his green where you see red, red um, blotches or chevrons or whatever, or is he totally patternless? Oh, no, I don't have the patternless male anymore. I, it, it, he's a normal male, but the male that he produced, uh, it was, there, there was really nothing there. It, he was, you know, that male pretty much lost everything. Oh, yeah, I see you're no saying. Red so at you're, all. You're None. Yeah, yeah. I, I see what you're saying. So you're going to breed his offspring, the, 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 this true patternless male who who looks pretty normal. You're going to breed him to this high red, blue, blue type animal. Yeah, the original male. I mean, I, I don't. The tough part is obviously at this point, without you know being able to test breed any further, I don't know if the patternless came from the male or the female. Uh, but you know, I still have this original male, so we're going to see what happens. Yeah, you'll have to let us know. Um, you know, uh, maybe if you could uh, make a comment on my Facebook page so that I can I can kind of keep you on my on my radar. I'd be interested to see what happens. Yeah, I'm really curious to see as well. Um, I, I think mainly at this point, um, he has such a long bloodline. I mean, his his lifespan's been pretty good. So I'm hoping to maybe you know pass that down. Yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised. I have some that are, you know, in excess of, of, of definitely eight years, maybe close to ten years, that females that are still producing eggs, um, and 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 males too that that are still viable. Um, I mean, I don't know how old he is, but but they're they're not as prolific, but but they um, they're they are still viable at, at in their elder age. Hmm. Interesting. All right, cool. Well, Derek, maybe you and I can talk a little bit too. Uh, you know, the, a lot of these females that I have here are from you, uh, so maybe we can yeah. put our heads together and you know figure something out genetically too. You never know, right? Yeah, I'm hoping so. Okay, cool. All right, thanks for uh, chiming in, Derek. Not a problem. Thank you. All right, later. All right. Bye, Derek. All right. Cool. Yeah, he's a he's a he's a great guy, Derek. Um, he's, got, he's got a beautiful collection of day geckos. Um, so you know, you know, I do have. You know, actually, John, those big those three big females 
including the blue blue blood uh, came from Derek. So I'm thinking that maybe yeah. maybe they could be could could the gene be in there somewhere as a recessive, perhaps? Uh, yeah, I think you have something there. I mean, I think that that um, this yes, I I, I do. Um, but now the question is, is what are you going to do with it to kind of make sense of it, of who, who's who and, uh, you know, who made this blue one and so, so on and so forth. Um, mm-hmm. That might take a conversation with Derek to kind of figure out and do some experimental breeding, you know, this coming year because, they're, they're this, you know, we're coming into the, our, next, our next breeding season. Okay. Well, you know what? That was going to be my next uh, uh, question for you, John. Uh, now that I have these three females and we have an idea of what, what they could Hold genetically. Um, I need a I need a nice big male for them, and uh, I definitely want to get it from you. And maybe um, you know maybe this would produce something that you know you're looking for. And I would have no problem sending it off to you if it does produce the pattern. List. I don't need to you know I have so much going on with leopard geckos. I don't need you know I'd rather give a gene like that to you that you you know more about what you're doing with day geckos. But I would I'd like to experience what it is to breed them. So. With that in mind, maybe you can, um, you know, provide me with a good mail for for my project here that would work that would work out along those lines. What do you think? Yeah, that sounds like a great great idea. I, I certainly can. Um, do, do you have pictures somewhere of, of of them? I will. I'll take great pictures for you. I'll send you uh, pictures yes, of babe. every every one. I know I've been lacking in the picture department, <laughs> but it's only because. I'm not good with cameras, John. I just got a new camera, and I haven't figured out how to use it really well. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't need you know. a picture. Even if you do it from your, you know, smartphone and send okay. it over via text, it'll give me a good idea of who I can lend you mail-wise to um, maybe be able to do something awesome there. Okay. They're so right, photogenic, cool. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> they just that? exude. <laughs> <laughs> They're beautiful. I know. I know they are. I, I, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to just um, I'll use my cell phone. I have an iPhone 4s. It's a good camera for that. It's it's this other camera that I just can't figure out. Got all the settings on it and everything. <laughs> I don't know what what I'm doing. So, but yeah, I'll get that to you during the week uh, for sure, John. And uh, yeah, when do they start ovulating? Usually. Um, well, for, for for me, it's kind of interesting. You know, the fact that mine are outside. Um, the first cold front kind of sets them off and they start kind of breeding like crazy. And then it gets kind of a little too cold for them and then they kind of shut down. But right when it starts mm-hmm. warming up, that's actually when they're laying eggs for me in South Florida. So mm-hmm. they're, they're doing okay. the majority of their breeding during the cool, the cool time. Gotcha. Interesting. Yeah, and when it, when it huh. gets really hot, it, they, they shut down as well when, when it gets too, hmm. too, too hot. Okay. Like a self-preservation. Right, cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're coming to the end of the show, John, and um, I'd like to, number one, say it's been an excellent uh, interview with you, and uh, I, you have an open invitation to come back anytime. And, in fact, uh, perhaps in the future, maybe we can do a show um, about reptile medicine, if you'd like. Yeah. Oh, that would, yeah, that would, that would I would certainly... Any way to help the community and um, you know be part of the community and you guys are doing such a great job with this show and I'm glad that there's listeners um, and you're certainly doing a service and you know thank you it's just really refreshing it's, you guys got oh, great attitudes you. 
and a real passion for Thank what you, you do, and and it's it's meaningful. Yeah, cool. I know it is. I try. That's one of my missions is try to, you know, do something good for the community. That's what it's about. Um, you know, is there anything as far as closing comments or information or remarks that you'd like to um, give out to the to the listeners? Well, uh, you know, since you put me on the spot, no, but having the opportunity, you know, anybody who's really into day geckos, please reach out to me. Um, you know, I, I would like to hear your projects. Um, I'd like to, you know, even share animals with you if you have something special because it requires these relationships to figure out what people have and what they're doing, and then sometimes great things happen from it. So certainly go to my website. It's um, giant daygecko.com. My email is on there, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And uh, please reach out to me because I always love to talk about geckos. Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool, John. We're going to let you go. Mandy, hang on the line. I'm going to talk to you for a minute after John goes. All righty. I'll be in touch with you this week, John. We'll talk about about the geckos, and I'll send you the pictures. Thanks so much, guys. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Amanda, it was great hearing hearing you. Thank you. It was okay, great have to talk to you too. Yep. All right. Good night. Bye. All right. Cool. What do you think, Mandy? First night as a co-host, I think you did pretty good. Thank you. Uh, was <laughs> only having uh, a couple hours of prep time, putting me on the spot. No, I really, I really enjoyed it. It was great to to help out. Yeah, no, I'd like to have you back anytime you want to do a co-host. We can set it up. I'll, um, I definitely want, I like the idea of having, you know, a female co-host sometimes. Oh, cool. I want to give a shout-out, by the way, to uh, Jillian Spence from Rainbow Mealworms is in the chat room. Um, we love Rainbow Mealworms. Yeah, Rainbow Mealworms is the best uh, mealworm company <laughs> to get your, uh, your feeders from. And uh, that's where I, I exclusively get all my... Um, Leopard gecko food from Rainbow Mealworms. So uh, that's awesome. Um, chat room's filled with a bunch of great people. Um, Jeff Scott, Mike, Sean, Steve, uh, Yvonne, Heather, Austin, Brooke. Wow, lots of guests too. Cool. Um, I just want to thank all you guys for listening in, and I hope you guys like the show tonight. Uh, again, Mandy, you did a great job, and uh, we'll definitely you. have you back again. And, um, Thank you. And I yeah. will see you on Saturday. Oh, that's right. Saturday is yeah. the Amber Show, right? Woohoo! Yep. Yep. And I will be that's there. That's right. Cool. Everybody come to the Hamburg, Pennsylvania Reptile Expo this upcoming Saturday. Uh, Mandy will be there. I'll be there. Our sponsors, uh, Dale's Breeder Dragons and um, Razor Shark Reptiles will be there. Uh, a lot of other great Woo. people, of course. It's great, it's great. It's the best show in Pennsylvania, right, Mandy? Yeah, it's the only one I've ever been to <laughs> that I can remember. <laughs> yeah. I think I was the one in Maryland when I was really little. But yes, it is an awesome show, and I can't wait to see everybody. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. All right. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to actually try to build some new displays for the show Saturday and see if I can get them done during the week. We'll see. But uh, if not, oh, I'm just going to bring yeah. my, old, my old stuff. You better, you better share the pictures with Gecko Nation. I want to see your day geckos. <laughs> yeah, we, I will definitely take a, the best pictures I can. And you know what? 
maybe we should do something special for the for this show, Mandy. Maybe we can, um, you know, me, you, Jamie from Razor Sharp, we can do like a little video for uh, Gecko Nation Radio yes. while we're there. Definitely. Yeah, I will be there all day, so. <laughs> cool. Find all me. right, awesome. Yep, definitely. All right, guys. Uh, Mandy, I'll let you go, and I'm going to go ahead and play the... All right. And, Good uh, night, please. everybody in the nation. Awesome. Later, Mandy. Later. All right, everybody. Another awesome episode of Gecko Nation Radio comes to a close. I'm going to play the outro plug, and then I'll come back with my closing remarks. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance. They are our most effective defense against legislation that threatens our rights of exotic animal ownership. Sign up for their newsletter and donate if you can at usherp.org. Okay, everybody. I uh, just want to thank everybody in the chat room. You guys are great, awesome. Um, to all the listeners out there, thanks again for tuning in. And um, I just want to say there is something special about geckos. Now, we all love reptiles. If you're listening to the show, you have a special fondness for uh, geckos and reptiles. Um, I believe if you're truly an animal lover, you love all species of animals. And... Um, Like we were saying in the beginning of the episode, there's more and more women, more and more people getting involved with reptiles. I want to encourage all of you guys, and I say this a lot, please get more people involved. If we all get one person involved, we grow exponentially. All right? Don't keep it all to ourselves. Everybody have a good night, and long live Gecko Nation.